Welcome to The Art of Range, a podcast focused on rangelands and the people who manage them. I'm your host, Tip Hudson, range and livestock specialist with Washington State University Extension. The goal of this podcast is education and conservation through conversation. Find us online at artofrange.com. Welcome back to The Art of Range. I have been wrestling a little bit with how best to introduce my guests and our topic today. I, I heard about some of this work through a news item I saw maybe a month ago, two months ago, about pastoralist peoples being displaced in Cameroon as a result of um, warfare and the activities of Boko Haram there. So I think I'm just going to read a few sentences from this article, and then we'll do some personal introductions uh, with, with my guests today. The title of this short news brief was Thousands of Pastoralists Seek Refuge in Waza National Park, Cameroon. I have no idea if I pronounced that correctly. In December 2021, a decades-long conflict between Muslim fishers and Shuwa Arab pastoralists escalated at the Logan floodplain in Cameroon, resulting in 112 villages burned, 66 deaths, and 100,000 displaced people. What has not been reported is that 2,500 pastoralists with an estimated 35,000 cattle sought refuge in Waza National Park on the west of the floodplain. The incursion of cattle into conservation areas has become common in Central Africa, but this is the first time the inhospitable Waza National Park has served as a refuge for pastoralists and their families. To assess the situation, one of us visited the park during December 29 through 31 of 2021. Uh, this article goes on to describe the major wildlife species in the park and the fact that this had been the most visited park in Central Africa until about 2013, when uh, listeners may remember Boko Haram kidnapped a family from France uh, in this area, and that pretty much shut down the tourist traffic. Uh, so my guests today are uh, Paul Schulte and Mark Moritz. And Paul, I don't know if I pronounced your name right, the authors of this report in Conservation News. And recently, having had my own eyes opened and my interest peaked uh, on pastoralist cultures in other parts of the world, this article caught my attention, and I thought it would be appropriate uh, to talk more about this for those who are not familiar with what's going on in that part of the world. Mark and Paul, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Pleasure to be to be with you. Yeah. Welcome to uh, where I enjoy. Uh, I'm looking forward to uh, this conversation as well. Well, you two might be the first interviewees I've had that I didn't have any prior knowledge of, and, and we really have not uh, known each other at all. So uh, it's easy for me to ask you to provide some background on yourselves uh, because I don't know you and our listeners, I think mostly won't know you. Uh, where do you live and work and how did you come to be do doing work with these cattle herders in Cameroon? I can start. Um, I'm Mark Moritz. I'm a professor in anthropology at uh, the Ohio State University. Um, I'm originally from the Netherlands and it's, um, that's where I started as a student. Uh, after that, I went to uh, UCLA to get my PhD and, um, my work in Cameroon started uh, as an undergraduate student at uh, Leiden University. And I was uh, working for a PhD student in Cameroon, Francis Darla. And I was doing part of a smaller or a small part of a larger, his larger PhD project. 
And that got me involved in uh, working with uh, pastoralists in the far north region of Cameroon. And then ever since I've been back for both um, my MA research, uh, my PhD research, and uh, research uh, in my postdoctoral phase. Yeah, my name is uh, Paul Scholte. I'm presently uh, working and living in Ethiopia, in Addis Ababa. Um, I've been actually ever since I graduated from Wageningen University in the Netherlands in the uh, late 1980s. I've been working uh, abroad um, quite a lot in Central Africa, 14 years in, in Cameroon in various, in various, during various periods and um, in other countries in Yemen. Um, and working often on protected area management, uh, rangeland ecology, and obviously also on pastoralism. So Cameroon, that's where I started in the early 1990s. Actually, the first time I went to Cameroon was being almost sent out of chat where the, uh, the, the security situation did not allow us uh, to, to get out of house anymore. So we, we took refuge in North Cameroon. Um, and Baza at that time was uh, heaven of, of peace. And, uh, and actually the whole of Cameroon was at that time very, very peaceful and easy to visit and to travel to. Um, I'm working presently for the German Development Corporation. I'm also visiting professor at, uh, at the, um, uh, arrived school, postgraduate school in, in Kinshasa, Congo, and still connected also with the Garaba Wildlife College, which is a, a college uh, training park wardens in based in that's in, in North Cameroon. Yeah, thank you. Uh, for, for those who can't pull up a map in their head and can't pull one up on their computer, can you describe uh, where Cameroon is and, and what is kind of the the geography or the the landscape setting there? Well, I can start. Um... It's sometimes described as the armpit of Africa and not that it is a stinky place, but it's where West and Central Africa meet. And it's very long from the uh, coast, uh, the Atlantic coast, all the way up to Lake Chad in the north. And as you go from south to north, you get through different ecological zones um, from the tropical rainforest to the highlands um, to the savannah. And um, I've worked mostly in the savannah area in the north. Um, it's also a country that's highly diverse. Um, so there's more than 250 languages that are spoken. And even in the small corner of Cameroon, where I worked most of my, most of my career in the far north, I think there's something like 35 languages. And, and Chad extends from the border of Cameroon clear up into the, uh, into the Sahara, doesn't it? Yeah, that's correct. And it's very much the, the heart or the center of the, of the continent. And obviously, the northern part of Chad that borders, or that's the Sahara Desert, and that borders countries like uh, Libya, um, and then obviously another two, three thousand kilometers, you're in the uh, Mediterranean uh, area. But it's uh, but it's quite still from from let's say the center of Chad, it's still some four thousand kilometer before before you're there. And then Sudan lies to the east of Chad. Is that right? Yes, then, then, you've, then you've got Sudan and um, west of Cameroon is uh, obviously Nigeria, um, the most populous country in the, uh, on the continent, um, a bit more than 200 million people. And north of, uh, of Nigeria is Niger. And again, north of Niger is Algeria and then the, the Mediterranean Sea. 
And Cameroon sits right at the south where those all come together. I feel like whenever I hear news from Africa, it's mostly bad news. And it's hard to imagine where we live in relative peace and security, having livestock operations displaced by war or this kind of social unrest. Uh, and I'd like to have you describe what that looks like for the people that are living there. Um, but I, I think I'd also like to have you describe pastoralism. What does the lifestyle look like of, of this people group? Uh, the way that, that I think of pastoralism, and correct me if I'm wrong, is, is that uh, we tend to think of livestock grazing here in the United States as uh, a, a way of making a living. But I think of pastoralism as, as more a way of life where people are mostly living and traveling with their animals, sort of like the case would be for somebody who was uh, a shepherd or a full-time sheep herder here. Is that an accurate characterization? I would say no, uh, and not just uh, to be contrary. Um, so knowing, yes, uh, yes, and so it is a way of making a living, and it is a way of life. And um, the way anthropologists describe pastoralism is that um, the, the 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 work of uh, keeping uh, herd animals is a, is a twenty four seven job, and it shapes uh, the everyday life, but also shapes societies. And so we talk. We write and uh, talk about uh, not just pastoral systems, but pastoral societies, because the 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 the, the, mm. the work of uh, um, raising livestock shapes all aspects of societies. But it's not uh, correct in the sense that I would, would argue that a lot of the um, um, grazing systems in the U.S. Uh, also uh, are not just a way of making a living, but also a way mm -hmm. of life. And so there's mm -hmm. uh, family farms that have been uh, in the family for hundreds of years. Uh, when developers move in and turn rangelands into uh, new development or subdevelopments, that's a class of cultures. Um, and so in many ways, I think I would argue that there's lots of overlap between uh, ranchers in the United States and other parts of the world and pastoralists in Africa and as well as other parts of the world. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate that. And I suspect many ranchers will appreciate that. I, I sense uh, having myself been, I guess, displaced from my home of origin in Arkansas about 25, nearly 30 years ago. Uh, there's a there's still a connection to that to that physical space that that persists you know in my head, and I think that connection to place is something that uh, people that have never been attached to it don't understand. But certainly, ranchers and farmers who have been in the same place for many generations in the U.S. Uh, share that that attachment to place. Uh, even though their work doesn't look like pastoralism. And I, I think that that is a good uh, reminder that there's different ways of owning land, using land, and, and handling this land use. Uh, but let's go, we'll, we'll get around to that. Let's talk about this situation in Cameroon. Can you describe uh, the culture of the pastoralists there? Is there a, a name for the, for this people group or is that not the case and what does their life look like so i um so there's many past lists um so they're the most the, the most uh, 
numerous uh, in terms of groups and households are um, Fulani, also called Fulbe or Pul in French. And the other numerous group is uh, the Arab Swa. Um, and uh, they're bilingual. They, they both, uh, in, mo- in most cases, speak both F- uh, Fulani as well as Arabic. Um, and then there's other Basel uh, groups as well. So there's, and, and that's true for the whole of, uh, of Africa. There's many different pastoral groups. Um, and then just there's lots of variation among these pastoral groups. And just, just to focus on uh, the far north region in which Logone Floodlane is located, uh, you have pastoralists that also farm. And so they keep a small herd of animals and they grow sorghum and millet. And then there's pastoralists who are mobile. And so they move with their whole family and their herd seasonally from one place to another. Um, so there's lots of variation in terms of dependence on, uh, in, in terms of culture, in terms of the dependence on agriculture, the dependence on livestock, and also in the, 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 the how mobile they are. And I could go on and talk about uh, the everyday life uh, or how they do the herding. Um, yeah, please. And now I'm going to create a stereotype and to keep in mind, there's lots of variation, <laughs> but take some of the, the, the mobile pass list that I'm most familiar with. Um, so it's a, it's a, it's or, the, the livestock is owned by a family. Uh, the family works together that it's relatively, there's a strong uh, sexual division of labor. And so women are in charge of the household and men are in charge of the herd. And of course, I'm exaggerating. If there's no boys to take care of the herd, the girls will step in. Um, animals are taken to pasture uh, from the early morning, say six o'clock, and then the, the, they are taken to pasture by a herder. Um, and it's an interplay between the herders and the herd making decisions about where to go and when to go. Uh, the animals are watered in uh, rivers or um, small lakes or uh, ponds. And then at the end of the day, they come back at around six o'clock, um, both before the uh, herd leaves. And when the herd comes back, uh, the, uh, the cows uh, with calves are milked. Uh, some of the milk is for the household and that is maybe sold at the market by women. Uh, some of the milk, of course, is for the calves. Um, so this is, goes on uh uh, 365 days a week uh, but they, uh, um, the, the movements and so they have uh, when the rainy season ends uh, pastoralists in this part of the world move to the Logone floodplain and so they pack up all their things they move they load everything on animals and then they move to a new site uh, and often it's a site that they've been many years before and so they have, a, they have a plan of course it depends on what the, the, the this year's uh, um, uh, situation is um, and the milk provides some of the milk is also sold in the markets by women and it provides some of the food uh, but to provide uh, for, to provide more income uh, some animals are sold uh, but the goal is not necessarily to make a profit but the goal is to feed the family and sustain the herd and the household for generations that's interesting. Are, do so many families are moving together and are they traveling together more or less when they, when they move? Yeah, there's, there's a lots of variation. Uh, of course, I'm going to say that many times. Uh, so my apologize. Sure. My apologies. Um, so some groups, so the households are not independent and so they, um, they often live with others. And so in, in, in our, Articles we've called this camps. And so a household consists of multiple camps and then maybe camps of uh, Fulani or Arab or combined. 
Um, these camps vary in size. And so the camps of the Arabs are relatively large, like 25, 30 households. And some of the camps of Lani are very small, like ranging from tw- two to 10. Um, and one of the reasons is that the smaller the camp, the, the fewer, the less pasture the animals have to share with other, uh, with cows or of cattle with other, uh, other camps. Um, when they move, uh, they generally move um, in groups and often people leave around the same time. Uh, but coming back to the issue of security, um, when there was banditry and kidnappings and in general in terms of insecurity, people move in larger groups because there's safety in numbers. Um, mm-hmm. And that's also why the Arabs say uh, Arabs love people and the Fulani love cows. And of course, uh, that's a joke. Uh, but the Arabs live in large camps because the, the, the size of the camps provides protection for the humans. Fulani uh, live in smaller camps and it's riskier for humans, uh, but it gives the, uh, the cattle better ac- access to better pastures. Forgive my ignorance. Are they selling any of the animals for meat or are they mostly selling milk or is it just subsistence living? So they, they drink milk. Um, uh, they sell milk, they sell yogurt, uh, they sell animals, and then animals are either resold and uh, transported to Nigeria, um, or they're um, butchered at the local markets and then uh, the meat is sold. Um, they rarely, uh, so they rarely eat meat themselves. Um, mm. With uh, weddings and other ceremonies, there may be uh, uh, one animal uh, is slaughtered and meat may be uh, um, Meat is consumed, but generally it's millet and milk uh, with maybe some dried fish. Um, so it's it's it, they're participating in the market economy, uh, but their goal is not to maximize uh, the money and earn as much money as possible, uh, but to grow the herd and um, make sure that there's enough animals for the next generation. Yeah, in the places where they're moving through and in, is that land? considered government land or is it how is land ownership handled in that part of Cameroon? Uh, just to, okay, Paul, do you want to step in? Yeah, I can, I can say something on it. I mean, it's the uh, Cameroon and, and also a country like Chet is a, is a, is a former, former uh, French colony. So formally in um, the, the all, all land is governmental land. I mean, that's, that's the formal situation since colonization and the mm-hmm. and the uh, and the, the 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 independent government has taken over that system, um, but obviously uh, there are more more call it traditional systems where uh, even if the government is the, the 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 exclusive owner of land, the organisation and the um, the the uh, is 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 often organised at a, at a far more local level. Um, but private land in the sense that, that we know it in the West, uh, does not occur a lot. And actually it's only the, call it the villages, the, set, the settlements where pure private land uh, can be found. Actually, even the most agricultural land, uh, cropland is uh, hardly ever uh, private land in the, in the pure sense that it has been registered and that people have, have, uh, call it easy, Easy uh, ownership on it. Um, so the um, the system of ownership and 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 land is obviously something that is that is very much also still under under development. 
and uh, spreading, I would say, out of the, 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 the big cities, the major cities, the, the major settlements. And obviously, that is, that is changing quite, quite rapidly in some of the um, wetter areas, but in the drier parts, um, uh, call it communal land or land that is not uh, private, is, is still dominant. Maybe this is too big a question, but how would you characterize that across uh, the rest of Africa? For example, I think of some of the countries in South Africa or the southern part of the continent of Africa where there does seem to be exclusive land ownership, where somebody has a farm and that's their spot and they have exclusive access to that. But then in places like this, there's more of a uh, common land held in common. Does do those differences track with uh, the way the African culture was prior to European colonization, or is it, does it track with the countries that colonized it, or is it more random and site specific than that? So that uh, I would say the big explanation is uh, that the uh, the the Countries in Southern Africa and Eastern country in Eastern Africa were settler colonies. And so you have to establish the white farms, um, and white ranchers. And, um, and that's, and so they occupied a lot of the land and ev- evicted a lot of the local, um, um, local pastoralists and local farmers. And, uh, in West Africa, most, co- I don't think any of the colonies in, in West Africa, maybe Liberia, uh, were settler colonies, so there was no established, there was no major program of establishing uh, uh, of, of colonialist settling, and that is the difference. And so the traditional systems are more intact. Yeah, and it's important okay. to, to 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 say directly, it's it's an issue that is enormous uh, uh, under discussion and 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 work, and creates more and more. Um, conflicts, um, especially obviously because of increasing pressure. So land is increasingly becoming a scarce, a scarce uh, commodity and, and, and that, re- that relates directly into, into um, some people taking more and others less uh, of the ownership of it. Mm. What is the, the social situation that resulted in Boko Haram uh, becoming active in in Cameroon or in the border with Chad? Yeah, I, I can say something on it, but obviously it's also a subject that is in, that, that, that's enormous and very quickly one, one risks simplifying it too much. But but let's say the, the general story mm-hmm. is obviously Boko Haram started and has its origin in Nigeria, being the, uh, directly uh, bordering to the west, uh, the, the area North Cameroon. And actually, the, what you described in the, in the, in the introduction, uh, with the kidnapping of the French, uh, tourists in 2013, um, that was the, call it the trigger. Um, and ever since Boko Haram has been present, um, in, in, in far north Cameroon. Um, but obviously they're building on, 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 on social, social unrest on, on, on all sorts of dynamics that, Existed already long, long, a long time in the area, so it's 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 much more reinforcing elements than than that is completely new. Obviously, the sheer of violence and the um, and the difficulty on on how to capture is 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 obviously something relatively new. 
Um, it has gone through all layers and obviously um, uh, more and more people are are set up against each other and that goes obviously that goes partly through more call it more and more tribal groups but but also much more on, on family lines etc and um, uh, so the, the the situation for 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 everybody in North Cameroon has has, has been become extremely complicated um, and mm. um, and that's still the situation uh, today even if over the last two, three years, the situation has been slightly improving, to use that word. Um, and some of the violence and some of the elements that we hear about now is less Boko Haram, but much more something that was already present some, some 10 years ago. So are, are they targeting individual people groups or are they just trying to spread general terror to accomplish their purpose? Is it targeted or is it just, we're here? I would I would be a bit more 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 pragmatic or describe it as as, as a more pragmatic movement. Obviously, there are religious and more ideological reasons behind it, um, behind Boko Haram. But I would say uh, much of the of the violence, much of what's happening, is far more as a way of survival, as a way of of earning, making an income, and obviously raiding. Um, uh, cattle and and other items are it has become one one business model for 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 Boko Haram as well. So it's mm. it's I, I don't think one should see it too much as a kind of religious movement, but far more uh, that that was the the background to, but at the start. But it has become something and a way of survival and a way of living, um, um, much more than anything else. And, and one thing, obviously, the the um, the the the, uh, the unrest and the, the the fight between between the fishers and the and the pastoralists that we discussed, that we mentioned that you mentioned at the very beginning that has little to do with Boko Haram in itself. That's far more an, 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 an almost a centuries old uh, uh, conflict or difference of interests and. Um, and um, obviously, the, the sheer size and the sheer violence that was um, now, uh, I mean, we're talking about more than 100 villages burned. We're talking about uh, thousands and thousands of displaced people. Um, possibly some of that sheer size is because the society has become less adapted, less, less uh, uh, leaders have become less present, less active, I would say, Possibly diverted from 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 activities with with Boko Haram in the past. So the uh, the resilience uh, use that word the resilience of society has reduced has become reduced. So possibly before Boko Haram, mm. uh, possibly such a conflict would not get so much out of hand as it has become now. And that's obviously call it the collateral damage of of, of Boko Haram that the uh, entire systems have have eroded because of because of what happened over the last few years. Yes, and you mentioned in this paper, uh, in the a, a different paper that I don't guess I've referenced yet, there was a 2019 article in the journal Land Use Policy where you're describing this situation and how uh, this displacement and the conflict sort of jeopardizes the resiliency of 
what you call an open property regime. I'm sure you didn't coin that term, uh, but I think that's a, a useful term to define here. Uh, we've talked a bit about land held in common, but how would you describe this open property regime in a little more detail? And how does uh, how does this displacement and this conflict jeopardize the stability of that? I can address that. Um, so, you, so you may be familiar with common property regimes. Um, and so uh, Eleanor Ostrom, uh, who won the Nobel Prize for her work, uh, show that uh, re when natural resources are held in common, and then maybe a fishery grounds or grazing lands or forest, they can be sustainably managed by um, by a community when they have uh, rules about who can access those uh, resources, how much they can extract, and what the, the, the rules also rules for uh, people who violate uh, the, to extract more or um, violate the rules. Um, and so this model has been dominant in a lot of the work on the uh, pastoral systems. Um, and what I, and that was also in my head when I studied uh, pastoral systems in the far north region of Cameroon. I really, uh, what I found was that uh, there is no such thing as a common property regime. And so pastoralists uh, are not bounded by one particular place. If you look at the, when I recorded the histories of uh, pastoralists uh, who have been in the Logone floodplain for uh, uh, for a while, it uh, turns out they came from Nigeria before, or they came from uh, Niger. Uh, others uh, that were in the Logone floodplain have since moved to uh, Chad or the Central African Republic or elsewhere in Cameroon. And so all the, the evidence that I collected uh, suggested that there was an open system, that basically there was open access to uh, pastoral, to all the, to the, the, the rangelands. <laughs> and of course, uh, Hardin's uh, theory of the tragedy of the commons suggests when there's open access to common pool resources, you will get a tragedy. And so there will be overgrazing. And that is not what uh, is happening. And, um, so then I tried to make sense of it together with Paul uh, and other colleagues and studied this system to see how it works and um, um, whether it's sustainable uh, or not. Um, and what we find is that open access is a right. Uh, it's a, this is, you can compare it with a right to clean air uh, and pastoralists describe it as uh, you cannot prevent people from access to grass because with grass, without grass, the animals won't survive. And with animals, uh, if animals cannot survive their existence, it affects their whole existence. Uh, and so everybody has a right, uh, uh, access to grazing land. It, it's a public good, not a, not a, a common pool resource. Um, and so then, then people ask, but is there no overgrazing? And then uh, it turns out in the Logone float plain, there is not. And the reason is that people move uh, elsewhere um, when, uh, when elsewhere is better. And so it's not that people are stuck in the place and then graze down the grass till they finish everything and then they move on. No, they're always assessing where, where will my animals do better? Um, so when they go, when they travel, when they go to markets, when they meet other people, after their greetings, the first thing they say is, uh, so where are you? So how are your cows? How is the grass? And um, 
if they find that their animals are not doing as well as the animals of other pastoralists, they uh, they realize it's time to move and uh, they move to places where the grass is better. And so this continuous movement of uh, cattle and grazing pressure over the landscape uh, prevents uh, a tragedy of the common, but it also uh, m- means that there, um, it also increases the fitness of all animals. Uh, so that's... Um, a counter argument against that open access leads to a tragedy of the commons. Uh, so we have these open property regimes and not just in the Chad basin where we work in the far north region of Cameroon, but also in other parts of the world and other systems where you have open access and no tragedy of the common. Uh, and one of the key things is that there's mobility is, is, is important. And so uh, you're not stuck in one place. You can move to where the resources are and that allows, um, yeah, that prevents the, uh, the overgrazing. It sounds like what you're describing is this ideal free distribution, which was a term that was new to me. I, I have heard of an open property regime, uh, but I had never seen the term before, ideal free distribution. Can you describe some of any other elements to that other than what you've just described? Yeah, so that that is one of the ways we assessed whether the system works. And so you can say there's freedom to move, uh, but maybe there will be total chaos and everyone goes to the same spot and you will get the same, you get overgrazing. Mm-hmm. Um, so ideal free distribution is a concept from behavioral ecology, and it predicts that uh, the distribution of the consumers of the resources will match distribution of the of the resources. And it has been used to describe the distribution of uh, fish populations, bird populations, as well as other populations. And so we used it, used it to look at the distribution of cattle in the Logone floodplain. And we used spatial um, remote sensing data to map uh, the, the resources. And we used the NDVDI as an indicator of where there were more resources and where there were fewer grazing resources. And then we did a survey or census of uh, all the pastoralists in the Logone floodplain or in our study area. And we estimated their number of cattle. And then we compared um, the distribution of cattle with the distribution of uh, grazing resources. And we found that there was a, a, a good match. So there's areas where there's more resources, you will find more pastoralists. And areas where there are fewer resources, you'll find fewer pastoralists. And the interesting thing is that uh, this ideal free distribution emerges from individual decision making. And so it's uh, individual pastoralists making the decisions that I just described, like seeing how your animals are doing, seeing how other animals are doing, then making a decision to move. And all those individual decisions lead to this emergence uh, of this ideal free distribution at the population level. And that's jeopardized when those movements are no longer free, but they're being either forced or constrained by other social factors. Yeah, exactly. And so uh, that's what the paper that you referenced in Land Use Policy is about. Um, so it, it looks at the impact of Boko Haram on the past list. And so the northeast of Nigeria, that's where Boko Haram is, has been very active. Uh, there are lots of past lists and lots of grazing land. And for the longest time, past lists stayed in the area, even though it was insecure. But when they were actually targeted and their uh, people were killed by Boko Haram and their animals were stolen, they fled the area. They basically, um, they described it as they ran out of uh, northeast Nigeria. Um, 
But basically it meant that the whole of northeast of Nigeria is now inaccessible. And so nobody can go there. There's grazing lands going to waste um, and they're stuck. Uh, they're limited to uh, where they can go. And that, of course, uh, sedentarization and settlement and fixing people in place, that is uh, um that is the danger for pastoral systems. And so mobility is a key adaptation in these uh, pastoral systems. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and, and actually also the pastoralists are more and more squeezed out of these of these areas, going further to the south, farther in, into the, the, the wooded savannas, where obviously the situation, the health situation for the animals is far more problematic. But also that, uh, that that's one of the few areas where um, national parks were were, were created, and um, and so the conflict between pastoralists and and the national parks, let's say the last remove the last wild areas is is increasing enormously over the last uh, couple of years. So actually, the pastoralists are a bit the the ones who were squeezed out of all the areas, and then uh, are are confronted and 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 uh, have no other choice. Then go into then to go into those those protected areas, and uh, so the tragedy is that that um, with all the civil unrest with the with with Boko Haram plus others plus increasing agricultural land, there's little uh, room for manoeuvre of for the for the pastoralists and only confrontations uh, with 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 con- with conservation. And sometimes also agriculturalists, obviously, is, is remaining. Mm-hmm. And you make the case that that, that, that is uh, costly in several ways for the pastoralists. What are some of those costs? Uh, the, fir- the, first, the first costs are obviously to go out of the areas where they have their, uh, where they normally stay and, and moving or fleeing out of those areas are, is, is costly because it's not just moving a herder with with the animals, but it's the entire family that that accompanies them. And uh, some of these protected areas, Vaza National Park, in which they fled, um, there was still quite a lot of water left uh, at the at the end of the flooding season. So pastoralists they they wade through uh, several decimeters of water. Um, so there's the risks uh, for 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 health, for for human health, but also for animal health. Um, so they've lost quite a, quite quite some animals, uh, especially sheep that are far less resistant, far more vulnerable for for humidity. Um, mm. But especially the moving out of areas where people are used, have their relatives, have their connections, have their knowledge, that is always costly. I mean, moving is always costly, and especially obviously if you move into areas where um, where, where disease. But plus plus. Plus risks, other risks. Um, not that there are many predators, but but for example, this case where two and a half thousand cattle went into Waza. I think some three, four cattle were predated upon by by lion, um, etc. So those changing is always costly, including for pastoralists. And to piggyback off on that, um, so I described that mobility is the, the key adaptation and moving is what makes the system work, uh, this pastoral system work. 
the people move do not move haphazardly. Uh, they're not wandering. Uh, so they, the moves are planned. And uh, before people move, they get uh, collect a lot of information. They go on scouting trips. And they often move to areas that they've moved before. And so both the humans as well as the animals know the areas and know the grasses and the resources. Uh, with when people have to flee, uh, all of a sudden they go to areas that they have no knowledge of, and animals are not habituated to those areas, and that means that the animals are not thriving; they're not gaining as much weight. Uh, the move itself, indeed, costs a lot of energy, and so this is highly distressful for both humans and animals. Yeah, that's interesting. Ranchers here that I've worked with would say that if they're moving livestock into a new area, that they may graze for a couple of months and then go somewhere else. It, it takes nearly three years, say, for the, the mother cow, for the mature females to become familiar enough with that area that they, that they do well, that they know where to find water and where to find grass and where to find minerals. Uh, and there's a, a learning curve for both the animals and the people. And that's exactly what's going on in Cameroon as well. Um, so the animals are habituated to certain to 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 the to the 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 seasonal round or the transhumans route that they make um that allows them to thrive and it also puts a certain stability in the system and that's why also people generally prefer to go to the same areas and so insecurity um screws that all up and all of a sudden a pastoralist cannot go to those places where they uh, feel at home and where their animals thrive and are habituated and you mentioned in the paper that uh that these people could be considered invisible refugees. They're almost like refugees, but they're not leaving, leaving their home territory. How would you describe the difference between uh, what the UN, what the United Nations would normally consider an official refugee versus uh, these invisible refugees? And I, the term that I'm using is an internally displaced person. And I know that's also an official term that I'm not certain I'm using accurately. But can you talk a bit about these invisible refugees and how that plays into how they get treated? And I'm not sure if we use the term correctly in the paper. And so um, what I learned later, uh, I think maybe last week even, is that refugee is an official status that you get uh, and a uh, status from the UN. And that allows you to uh, enter, for example, the, U- the United States as a refugee. And so it's an official status. And so you can flee your country and not be a refugee because you have not been officially recognized. Um, we use the term invisible refugee uh, because um, mainly to... to um, to make the point that these pastoralists that flee uh, Boko Haram from Northeast Nigeria are not on the radar of uh, the uh, United Nations, uh, UNCHR, uh, the, the UN organization that helps uh, refugees, because pastoralists do not go to the camps uh, for the displaced people. Uh, they just stay in the bush uh, because of they have herds, they have to feed their animals. And so they're not counted, they're not, they're not, uh, ac- they don't have access to aid. And so the, their flexibility and mobility that they um, is both um, an advantage and a disadvantage. And so it's an advantage in the sense that they can eat. They're used to moving, of course not. They're not used to fleeing, uh, but they're invisible and they don't have to. Um, they don't get the support and are not counted by the official organizations. Right, right. Yeah, I would. 
I would say the term refugee, I guess that's lowercase r refugee, is a generic noun, and I'm not sure the United Nations gets to own that dictionary. You know, this the the term I guess means somebody who's seeking refuge from the place where they would normally be, and in that sense, uh, these people groups certainly fit that definition. They may not be fleeing very far, but they're certainly leaving places they would normally be, and in that sense, uh, you know, fit the generic definition of a refugee. Yeah, that's and, and, and our, our yeah, and our problem is obviously is that we are um, our world is is a world of sedentary people. Um, they are dominant in terms of numbers, but also in terms of of positions, um, and so it's very difficult to look with a perspective of a, of, of a pastoralist of somebody who is who is moving to these to these issues. So the um, it's not only the matter of the definitions, but all the, the all the, the whole organization in terms of how to how to intervene, how to give a helping hand, how to etc. is so much biased by the sedentary perspective that um, call it the, the the transhumant or the nomadic perspective of of most pastoralists is completely ignored. Um, and partly logically because they are minority in terms of the overall numbers, but unfortunately, it may, means also that they are left completely on their own. And uh, and considerations on how one could do something to give a helping hand is is completely um, is, is not being thought of. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned that. One of my questions that just came to mind is what. How do the other people in Cameroon see the pastoralists? Are they marginalized within their own country? What percentage of the population are they, and what do other people do? And is that is everybody else working with a common property regime, or is that just existing in the places where the pastoralists uh, have grazing areas? Yeah, I, th- I think one has to be careful to think there is one 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 um, one perspective or one way of viewing them. Um, and again, I think. Mm-hmm. That that very much depends on from from where one is, and um, let's say from the from the the, the big city pr- uh, perspective, um, the capital, the the governmental uh, systems, um, the 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 citizens in 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 those parts of the country. I think people will see them as relatively backward, uh, relatively um, uh, people who who care about their animals, but they have possibly difficulty seeing them in terms of, of, of citizens with the same the same aspirations with the same uh, perspectives. Um, I think more more rule based people, even um, non pastoralists, will see it differently. I think um, because they're so much closer to them and see also call it the rationale of of this of the of this way of living. So it, it 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 very much depends on what what. But the further one is away from the pastoralists, the more uh, difficult it, it becomes for those people understanding and, and 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 understanding the logic, the rationale, and the and the um, yeah the overall system is. And I think that's that's something that we see el- elsewhere as well. I mean, this is not nothing special for Cameroon or for Africa, but I think this is this is worldwide. One sees this. Sure. And I meant to ask, ask, go ahead. I was going to say that's also why the International Year of uh, Rangelands and Pastoralists is so important uh, because Pastoralists and Rangelands uh, bring so much value to the world. 
uh, including in Cameroon. And so uh, most of the, the, the protein is provided by uh, pastless in the form of milk and meat. And so they're integrated in the market economy and they make an enormous uh, economic contribution, but it's not valued and it's not recognized. Is there a difference between pastoralism and nomadism? I would say nomadism is an old, uh, old-fashioned term that we should abandon. Uh, as I just okay. mentioned, past uh, lists are not wandering; they're uh, they're right. ongoing transhumans. Uh, so they go places that uh, they've been before, that their animals are habituated. Of course, it doesn't mean that they always go to the same places. But nomads suggest wandering uh, without clear um, clear goal, uh, without any home. Um, and of course, there's lots of variation among pastoralists, and so some are more mobile than more than others. Um, but I suspect that even the most mobile uh, pastoralists, and so in the, the, the drier the areas are, so for example, the Tuareg in the, the Sahara Desert, I suspect that they also have a sense of place and that they're not just uh, randomly wandering about. Right. No, that's a good distinction. So one, one, tell, one uses much more the word mobile pastoralism or, or sedentary. Um, even if there are all sorts of, obviously, of, of variations in it. Sure. I'm curious uh, whether whether you feel like uh, what you're doing there is intended to help or mostly to understand. I feel like we, uh, particularly in the United States or you know Western civilization in general, often feel like we should do something, whatever do something means. And we also, though, tend to have, uh, I guess, blinders. You mentioned that what you see depends partly on where you're looking from. We have we have a, a worldview that tends to see all poverty as primarily material poverty. And that the way to fix it is through uh, giving money or giving resources or alleviating what we perceive as being material poverty. Uh, but there's a, a really good book by a doctor who spent a lot of time in Africa years ago. The, the book title is Margin, and he's describing the need in the West for people to have uh, various kinds of margin, you know, some mental space, margin in how we spend our time, margin in how in how we... Uh, use our money. Anyway, he had a good quote. He said that the Africans say that you Americans have all the watches, but we have all the time. And there's there's definitely a, a part of me that sees that as something that's good and that we need to learn from and, and move uh, toward, because we've definitely been racing in the opposite direction of having any kind of margin, uh, including having any white space in our schedule. And I think that's something that uh, pastoralism and pastoralists can uh, model for us and offer to us, even if uh, none of us are going to likely become cattle herders in Cameroon. But uh, but we can slow down a bit. That's a long-winded way of saying, do you feel like your work is intended to help? And, and what does help even mean? Yeah, I, th- I think first the, the, the understanding is crucial. And that's understanding not only of us, Let's say as 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 foreign foreign uh, uh, visitors, foreign uh, workers in in a country like Cameroon. But obviously, we've been working with uh, with our uh, national colleagues um, a lot, 
And uh, so it's, it's, it's a common learning and it's, it's, it's learning for us, but also learning for our colleagues. And uh, what I was just earlier mentioning, it's the perspective of people from the city, um, which increasingly is obviously the majority of the population of a country like Cameroon is, 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 uh, so ignorant of, I would say, the, the, the pastoral way of living. So mm. having this, this understanding, um, further spread and, uh, having, having national colleagues taking, taking over the understanding and spreading that, uh, amongst their peers in the, in the cities, in the universities, etc., in research institutions, in the, in the, at the decision making level, that, that's, that's extremely important. Um, so I, th- I think that's, 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 and uh, on, on the long run, that, that has, I think, uh, been our major impact. Uh, on the other hand, especially mm-hmm. in related with the, the, the keeping a minimum of mobility or possibility for mobility, um, that's often jeopardized by large scale developments and large scale developments have often been, 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 been driven or being, been introduced from outside. Um, be it, be it the damming or the embankments along a river that, that stopped flooding in the Laguna floodplain, large rice schemes with, with funding from, 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 from World Bank and other um, um, international organizations. So somehow the, uh, the, the understanding and, and, and awareness is crucial to stop or, 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 or reduce this kind of detrimental developments. So I, mm-hmm. I, th- th- there's this mixture of feelings with it. Yes, um, one should not try to do a kind of micromanagement of micro inter- interventions. I think that's, especially in the pastoral world, has little, little, uh, little influence and, and, and can easily be, be, be counterproductive. On the other hand, having an eye on these large scale developments, I think that definitely makes sense. And there, I think we do carry responsibilities given, given the, the international character of these developments. Sure. Thank you. Mark, anything to add to that? Yeah, for me, it's learning and understanding and hopefully uh, telling stories that help others to see it differently, uh, just as Paul explained. Um, so I, <laughs> I'm still learning about pastoral systems. Um, and my, as you, as you mentioned, it's not that people have blinders, but they also use frames. They see the world with a particular frame. And uh, as anthropologists, uh, our goal is to translate points of view from from point of view one to point of view two. So meaning mm-hmm. uh, I try to communicate how pastoralists see the world and how they make decisions, what they think is important, and then communicate that to uh, uh, people who have some say about the pastoral development, for example. And so that means uh, challenging stereotypes about open access or st- challenging stereotypes about Fulani pastoralists. Um, and that's why I'm so happy to be part of this podcast because I can tell my stories about the importance of mobility and share more uh, information about what it's like, how pastoralists think, and that it's not that different from uh, ranchers in the American West and other parts of the world. Um, so I think that's, that's my main goal. Uh, and I'm an academic. And so most of my work is, is doing research, helping understand how the under, helping or learning to, uh, to understand how these systems work and then teaching others about how these systems work and how to think, how to communicate 
different ways of uh, being and different ways of life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that. I'm resisting the temptation to dive into the similarities between ranching and pastoralism, American ranching, but I think there's probably enough to talk about there that we should save that for a future interview. Uh, yeah, I, I find this... Go ahead. I was going to say, I would love that. And I would uh, bring my colleague, Nicolaus Schaika, to the table and maybe some other folks as well that we've been working with. Uh, because I think there's lots of similarities. Uh, and the, the question is, are there, is there, are there qualitative difference between the two or not? Uh, or is it just in our mind? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we should do that. You mentioned a little bit ago uh, a person who won the Nobel Peace Prize for some work on the open property regime. I didn't quite catch the name. Can you say just a bit about that again? Yeah, Eleanor Ostrom, she worked at Indiana University and uh, okay. she wrote a great seminal book, uh, the Governing the Commons. Uh, she's been very active. Um, and so she used both uh, case studies, uh, theoretical work, um, as well as other, other kinds of approaches to demonstrate that humans can avoid the tragedy of the commons. And uh, that is why she earned uh, the Nobel Prize in economics. Great. Thank you. And my last question was going to be, are there any books or other articles that you would recommend if people want to learn more about this? I find this fascinating and I'm actively looking for other things that uh, provide uh, the historical perspective on uh, pastoralism and open property regimes. Do you have any other recommendations besides Eleanor's book? Uh, this is not a pastoralist book, but it's a book I just finished and I really enjoyed. Um, and it's the call of the reed, reed warbler, uh, by Charles Massey. And he's a pastoralist in Australia and he practices, uh, regenerative, he studied and practiced regenerative agriculture. And, uh, he draws on lessons both from indigenous people as well as pastoralists and ranchers across the world, uh, to offer a new way of, uh, raising sheep and other livestock uh, and uh, taking care of the land. And it's well-written. Um, I highly recommend it. Uh, but it's not about past list. Right. Okay. And what is his name? Charles Massey, M-A-S-S-Y. Great. Yeah, we'll include that in the, in the show notes. My guests today were Paul Schulte and Mark Moritz. Uh, gentlemen, thank you very much for your time. This has been really enlightening for me and I think will be uh, interesting to our listeners. It was a pleasure. Yeah, it was a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Art of Range podcast. You can subscribe to and review the show through iTunes or your favorite podcasting app so you never miss an episode. Just search for Art of Range. If you have questions or comments for us to address in a future episode, send an email to show at artofrange.com. For articles and links to resources mentioned in the podcast, please see the show notes at artofrange.com. Listener feedback is important to the success of our mission, empowering rangeland managers. Please take a moment to fill out a brief survey at artofrange.com. This podcast is produced by Connors Communications in the College of Agricultural, Human, and Natural Resource Sciences at Washington State University. The project is supported by the University of Arizona, and funded by the Western Center for Risk Management Education through the USDA National Institute of Food and Agriculture. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed by guests of this podcast are their own and does not imply Washington State University's endorsement. Music